feeling some relief now. Good morning. Good morning to you and to those of you who are um, live streaming. I'm feeling some relief, so I just saw our main star walk in. I have to pick this up. Sorry, I'm not used to this. Unaccustomed as I am. So as a courtesy to other people, would you make sure that your cell phone is in the off position? You don't want to be an embarrassment to yourself during this time. And uh, take a look, take a uh, chance uh, to turn around and look at the people who are standing back there at the table. That's how many t people it takes to live stream this class out. So um, we thank them for doing this. You will notice, yes. You will notice that Wayne uh, Herbert, who is the head of the steering committee for Ordinary Life, is not here today. Wayne is at home recovering from a very very serious illness. He was in the hospital for almost two weeks, and he just came home this week, and he's got a lot of recovery to do. So you will want to keep Wayne and Callista in your prayers uh, for his speedy recovery. He is on the mend, but he still has a lot to do. And thank you, John, for bringing the sacred cookies. Thank you for doing that. So let's do as we usually do and begin in uh, silence. Do what you need to do to be here, to be present. Get in this room and have the awareness that we don't have to go anywhere to be in the heart of sacred mystery or to be open to grace. So we give thanks for this time and for our lives, for the people who are gathered here, for the opportunity to explore our spiritual journey and to grow in our experience and expression of the godly traits of love and truth and freedom. And we do so with the belief that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. Amen. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, and so um, I want to assure Dr. McDonald that I'm only going to say a few words, and I'm not going to trample on anything that he wants to say, but I, it is so good to be here, and it's so good to see you. It is so good to be um, at home. Back before the pandemic upset our lives so, I used to take a month off from teaching every, month, uh, every year. And um, I borrowed some lines I heard from Dr. Jim Bankston about that. I said, uh, I need a break from this and you need a break from me, <laughs> which is true. Um, but nothing is like it was before COVID. So, COVID. So, I did take a couple of weeks off going with the choir on their recent trip to England. Um, today, Dr. Jeff McDonald is going to speak. Uh, I think he's going to spend his time talking about how and why I need a raise. But I, <laughs> I could be mistaken about that. It could be something else. Uh, the Sunday next Sunday, uh, Holly and I are co-teaching. 
Uh, we're still doing the deep dive into the Gospel of John. We're into the resurrection and resurrection appearances, and we're going to talk about that next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, uh, Roddy Young is going to speak, and we'll never be the same again. <laughs> That'll be a miracle right there. So, I, you know, international travel is hard. Every airport does uh, theater security differently. So some things they check you very uh, carefully and some not. You spend almost as much time getting through customs, getting through security and all that as you do actually on the airplane. Some of you may know that our flight back to Houston was canceled before we left home. And so uh, we didn't have details about coming back to Houston until just days before we left. And um, when it did get rescheduled, it was complicated. Nobody got to fly directly back to Houston. We got to fly, some of us, if we were lucky, to Dallas. Others got scheduled to Miami, others got to San Francisco, one person got scheduled through Boston, and if you can believe it, some people actually got scheduled through Austin, from London to Austin, Austin to Dallas, Dallas to Houston. <laughs> Go figure. And of course, the British Airlines flight that we were on from London to Dallas was delayed, so we missed our flight in Dallas. Now, <clears throat> the plane that we flew on is an Airbus 380. And uh, I, I don't know if you know how big this aircraft is, but if you can look at it, you see all the doors of entry to that airplane. There are over 530 passengers on this plane. It's a small city, or well, it's a village. Um, 24, I looked this up on the Google, 24 flight attendants, six pilots, because they have to rotate three and three. That's a lot of people, which is wonderful when everything works. <laughs> but if it's canceled or delayed, that inconveniences 530 some odd people. And so the rebooking line in Dallas, I kid you not, was two blocks long. It just people trying to get on flights, a lot of things. So the inquire, uh, the, here's the inside, if you got in the front door of that aircraft, a stair step going up. The entire choir, uh, those are not the entire choir, but about 60 people in the choir and all the roadies, which we were part of, went to London. We got on two buses and we drove from London and stopped in Salisbury which I was really intrigued to do. By the way, this is where the choir was going to sing a couple of years ago, but COVID came and so it got canceled. And I was really intrigued to be in this cathedral because this is, as you know, I love Gothic architecture. This is English Gothic architecture. This is the cathedral that um, Ken Follett wrote about in the book, uh, Pillars, uh, Tower of Pillars of Fire, that's it. Pillars of the Earth, thank you. Um, this church is built in 1220, that's kind of old. And it was just gorgeous to be in, inside of that, that, that place. If you have not read Ken Follett's books, they're big, but boy, they are, I think, instructive. 
We went to Cornwall. Cornwall is this place down here. I'm going to walk over here, camera. Sorry. <laughs> they were not prepared for that. So this is Cornwall, and London is up around here. So we had like a long drive down here. This is a very, very beautiful country. Uh, lots of uh, greenery, lots of sea coast, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, friendly people, a little view of the countryside. If you've seen Doc Martin or if you've seen Poldark, they were filmed here in Cornwall. The cathedral in Truro dominates the relatively small village. And there's a story about the cathedral that I'm not going to go into now, but about why it was built. But more interesting to me, and I did not know this when we left, this is the inside of the cathedral where the choir sang, <clears throat> is John Wesley's history to this place. John Wesley has a connection to Truro. He wouldn't preach in Truro until somebody, his, one of his mentors or somebody died. Jeff probably knows the story better than I. But... Um, Truro was known for mining. They mined tin. And um, huge crowds would come to hear Wesley preach. And in one place, this is called Gwynapp Pit, it is said that he preached up to 20,000 people. And um, this is what he says, if you can read this. He says... About five in the evening, I preached at Gwynep. I believe God enabled me, so to speak, that even those who stood furthest off could hear distinctly. I think that this is my nay plus ultra, meaning there's nothing beyond this. I shall scarce see a larger congregation till we meet in the air. John Wesley, 1781. 20,000 people preached in this. I tried my hand at it. <laughs> No one showed up. <laughs> so um, for me, the highlight of being on a trip like this is to be with the choir and in the, in the, in the services that they do. We had an opportunity to be in Evensong, um, Holy Eucharist, morning worship, something almost every single day. And our senior pastor... Dr. Jeff McDonald got to be in every one of those services. It was great to see him participating like that. I wish I had a picture of some of it, but I don't. He wishes I didn't too, but um, it, it was just great. This is a picture of the choir. Jeff is in the far back, and this picture is taken inside St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which is where the choir ended up singing in residence. It was a great trip. And we, this group of people, these musicians, they do such a wonderful job uh, expressing for us the sacred. They just, they do it wonderfully. And um, here is our speaker, Dr. Jeff McDonald, my boss. So um, when Lene and I decided to travel with the choir on this trip, and it was very exciting, we were glad to do that, and uh, 
Bill and I were going to sit next to each other on the plane so that for the eight and a half hours from Houston to London, he could regale me with pun after pun after pun. <laughs> but sadly, we were split into two groups, and Lene and I were on a different plane. Uh, you know, it was interesting, our planes took off about the same time and landed about the same time, but during none of that time did I have the pleasure of hearing those puns, and so <laughs> it saddens me. <laughs> it was an amazing, amazing trip, and um, it, it, it was, you know, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist movement, it was never their intent to break away from the Anglican Church. You know, we, they were Anglican priests, and they died Anglican priests. It was never their idea. You know, Martin Luther started something new and different, but that was not the Wesley's idea. Their notion all along was to strengthen the Anglican Church and to work harder at, at our discipleship and our spiritual lives uh, within the church itself. And, and you know, the possibility is that, that we could be Anglicans today, but there was a little something that happened in 1776 here in America that, uh, that caused that to change. But that was really the beginning of the Methodist movement as a church uh, happened because of the revolution here. Now, that's not what I want to talk about today. But what was so interesting, I thought, was that um, at the church in, in Truro, at the cathedral there, uh, there is a stained glass window of John and Charles Wesley because they, uh, they really uh, led a revival movement in Cornwall all through that area. And, and here's, here's the reason why I think this is such, such an important part of who we are as Methodists, uh, that, that John Wesley did not very often preach in the same church more than once. He'd be invited to come and preach in a church, and they'd have a service like the services we did. And, uh, but um, his preaching was not very well received in those churches because um, he, he preached the gospel, and he preached about grace, and he preached about taking care of widows and orphans and, and all the work that went into that. Uh, kind of a prophet in his time. And so he was not often invited back to those Anglican churches to preach again. That's why he ended up preaching in places like the pit with 20,000 people there, because there were people that were hungry for that message of grace. Not wanting to go into churches and hear about guilt and get beat up about how bad you are or anything, but instead to hear a message of God's grace. And that's what John Wesley preached. And so I wanted to... Um, I wanted to kind of weave a tapestry of connection today for you all. And Bill, you teed it up grandly to talk about Truro and about the Wesleys and their work that was there. You know, um, if, if you belong to um, a Methodist society in John and Charles Wesley's day, uh, you had to, you had to uh, do all these things during the week, what the Wesleys would call means of grace. And you had to do enough of those things in the week to have enough points to be able to go to church on Sunday. 
So you would go and uh, visit somebody in the hospital and you'd get points or you'd get your ticket punched for that. You'd go visit somebody in prison. You would go to a Bible study, all those things. And if you accumulated enough points during the week or enough punches to your card, you got to go to church on Sunday. I wonder if maybe we could uh, learn something <laughs> from that too. Anyway, uh, I think one of the greatest things about about United Methodism and about our, our Wesleyan heritage is connection. And, and so there we were, uh, how far away is Truro? 4,500 miles, I think, something like that, uh, in this cathedral. And, and there was this beautiful stained glass window of John and Charles Wesley, uh, the founders of Methodism and, and our movement. So um, really who we are is that we are people that are connected. And the connect, so when we were at St. Paul's Cathedral and did the Evensong service there, uh, the Molino, the family, a family from here at our St. Paul's was in the service that was there. And so we're just, we're connected in so many amazing, amazing ways. Um, and I think that's what strengthens who we are, is that connection. And so let me tell you about a different connection too. Uh, that we have. When, uh, our, our bishop, Bishop Jones, is also the bishop of Laos. And uh, the country of Laos is um, along the border of Thailand and Vietnam. Uh, if you were alive in the 60s and 70s and remember the Vietnam War, uh, the country, I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the, how many millions of tons of bombs were dropped on the country of Laos because Laos was a supply line for the North Vietnamese, so the United States was heavily bombing that country. And uh, so uh, there's, uh, anyway, the Methodist Church is beginning to grow in the country of Laos. And the reason is because there, um, there's a, a pastor, a Methodist pastor, that grew up in Laos. His father was in the Laotian army that was working for the CIA at, during the Vietnam War. And um, when the war ended, they had to escape from the country. So they, uh, they swam across the uh, Mekong River into Thailand, and they waited there to move to the United States. And uh, they finally were given permission to move to the United States. And there was a whole community of them that had moved to Minnesota, of all places. And in Minnesota, the Methodist church there sponsored these families. And so they, these Laotian families became a part of the United Methodist Church and became active there. And uh, this one pastor, Daniel Yang, he, um, not Danny Yang that used to be here, an associate here at St. Paul's, but a different Daniel Yang. Uh, Daniel, his family became active in the church. He went to seminary. He became a United Methodist pastor. And he decided that he needed to take Methodism back to his village in Laos to, to bring that message of grace and mercy and love back to that village in Laos. Now, here's what's in interesting about Laos. Laos is a communist country. They have freedom of religion, but only for churches that have been okayed by the communist government there. So the Catholic Church 
and the Evangelical Church of Laos and the Seventh-day Adventist are the only churches that are recognized by the government and so can freely operate and run there. But Methodism is growing and growing and growing there because of this message of grace that John Wesley preached to those miners all those years ago. That same message is there. And so the church is growing. And listen, I didn't know anything about Laos or what was going on there until um, I, I was chair of the Board of Ordained Ministry for the Texas Annual Conference. Bishop Jones came to be our new bishop, and uh, his secretary called me and said, uh, Bishop Jones wants to have a, meet, have a meeting with you and talk about Board of Ordained Ministry things. Can you come? And so we set up a time to visit, and uh, she called me back and said, by the way, is your passport up to date? <laughs> and, and I said, yes, it is. Why? And she said, well, Bishop Jones will talk to you about that when you get here. So... <laughs> You know, we're itinerant, we move around, and I'm thinking, if I need a passport to go to my next appointment, where in the world am I going? So, well, every, every United Methodist has a bishop. And so some conferences are just getting started and can't afford a bishop, so we share some bishops. And here in the Texas Conference, we share Bishop Jones with the Laotian Conference. It's a new conference, and they don't have a board of ordained ministry. They don't have a way of... of of training and credentialing pastors. So a group of us from the Board of Ordained Ministry here started a process, we started five, six years ago, working with those pastors and doing training and, and commissioning and ordaining. And so now, we, right now we've commissioned, we've commissioned 26 pastors and we've ordained 12 over there. And we've got some that are ready to go again, but we've had to put things on hold because of COVID. We went, the last time we went was January of 2020. And if you remember, there was already some reports of COVID and, and uh, my family was like, are you sure you want to go there? I think we'll be okay. And we were all okay. And we didn't bring any COVID back with us on that trip. But, but we haven't been able to go since then. Um, and so they've been waiting for us. And so we're, we have, um, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to, even though I'm no longer chair of the board, Bishop Jones and the group asked me to go one more time because of the relationships we built with the people there. So at the end of this month, I'll be taking my last trip to Laos and we'll uh, ordain a few more and we'll commission a few more. But it's an amazing part of our connection of who we are, um, that, that Methodism is growing in that country and people are... Um, People are flocking to hear that message of grace and not a message of guilt or gloom and doom, but God's grace that we're loved by God and we're God's children and they, they want to hear that message. Now, Laos is one of the poorest countries in the world. They still have um, these unexploded ordinances all over the country, you know, bombs that fell but didn't explode. And so this is, I, I just find this so amazing. So we, the United States, dropped these millions of tons of bombs on this country. Now we, the United States, are pouring millions of dollars into training Laotian people to find where these unexploded bombs are and, and uh, dis, un, uh, uh, disarm them, disarm them. 
And uh, it, because the, uh, those villagers are kind of itinerant in their farming and they'll move around and they'll build kind of a cooking fire in the wrong place and this bomb will explode. And, and so we're, spent, we're spending money now to clean up kind of the mess that we made that was there. I think it's, you know. Uh, so, and, the, and those people, they take those, unex those ordinances and they disarm them and they're making them into jewelry and dishes and all sorts of things. It's, it's this amazing uh, kind of turn of events. But, but these, these are farmers, um, predominantly rice farmers, uh, in these small villages. And so in this village, you, you might have a Catholic church and allow evangelical church and then you've got this Methodist pastor who's got people coming uh, more and more people coming to their churches and the Catholic pastors are getting mad and the evangelical pastors are getting mad and these Methodist pastors are really operating illegally until Methodism gets recognized as a state religion like the others they're operating illegally, so it's they're they're in fear all the time. Now we're never in fear when we're there because they're not gonna, as long as we're not passing out Bibles, they don't bother with us. But those Laotian pastors, we've uh, the last time we were there in 2020, we ordained a guy that uh, he'd been in the Laotian prison for 18 months because the Catholic priest in his village got mad and went to the village chieftain and said these people are operating illegally. And so they put him in jail, and um, they came to him and said, if, if, you'll, if you'll renounce your Methodist beliefs, we'll let you out. And he said, no, I can't do that. I mean, and we're talking, this is the year in 2018 when this happened. So um, we, we treasure and value our religious freedom here. Uh, so, uh, so that you've got these rice farmers and this group of us from the Board of Ordained Ministry, the first time that we went, we worked on all these um, questions that were kind of like the things we answered from the Book of Discipline, these written questions and all about uh, what does it mean to say Jesus is your Lord and Savior and some really kind of deep theological things. And on the plane ride over there the first time, which is brutal and there's, it's just, you think going to London is bad, it's, it's, no fun. It's a long old flight over there. You fly to, from Houston to Taipei and Taipei to Bangkok. It's just a long way. And uh, anyway, we're reading their papers and we realized we, we, we can't interview these people like we thought we were going to do. You know, they just, they don't have any, they're farmers. And they maybe had a second or third grade education, whatever the Laotian government provides there. So we had to completely change and we started asking things like, uh, Tell us, tell us about a time that you told somebody about Jesus and God's grace. And so they would tell that. And uh, they're wonderful, lovely. And they're not itinerant like we are. They're going to stay in their villages and be the pastors in those villages. Uh, but I, I tell you that because it's just it's this amazing connection. And I think about drawing those lines from, from Cornwall uh, to Houston to Vientiane, Laos, and really, those lines of connection you could draw all over the world. I mean, you could draw lines now to London, and you could draw lines to uh, there's Methodists in China, and and we, you know, we've got uh, Bolivia, we've got missions that are going on there, and so all those uh, connections are so. I, I think it strengthens who we are as a people. Um, 
more so than some other groups and other denominations because um, that, that being a worldwide group and the way that we relate to one another, uh, no matter who you are, that, what you all say, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter where you are on your journey, we're all still connected in just these incredible, incredible ways. So, uh, but let me, let me stop there because I do want to talk about one other connectional kind of thing and see if you all have any questions or comments or anything because I quickly covered Laos but because uh, it's, a, it's a pretty incredible place. Yeah. They will stay United Methodist. Uh, that's that our our missionary contacts that are there are tied closely to the Philippines. In fact, I don't really understand why the bishop of the Philippines is not the bishop of Laos because it's a whole lot shorter plane ride than from <laughs> Houston over. But their their bishop and their people have said we we're remaining United Methodist. So that's that's been a good and heartening thing for us. Yeah. Other Laos questions I can answer for you? Yeah. How many members are in the church there, and are the members at risk? Or are they just the ministers? The members and the ministers are at risk. Yeah. Yeah. There are um, 62 worshiping communities in Laos. Uh, there's a couple that are in Vientiane, which is the capital, which is a big city of a million people, but most of them are all in the countryside in, in these villages. So, and so there, if you think about um, New Testament house churches, that's more what it's like. When we've been to visit these churches that are out in the rural areas, um, very few of them have a church building. Most of them have church in the pastor's house. And so we'll gather, and there'll be 15, 20, 30 people who have gathered together at the pastor's house. Now, here's what's interesting uh, that, that is pretty cool about Methodism is that um, in communities where the Methodist church, in communities in Laos where the Methodist church is really thriving and doing well and the people aren't threatened, it's because the pastor has made uh, a good relationship with the village chief. And what they do is, and, and what we're seeing all over is, is that uh, the met, th that's, that's what's great about our connection because we're helping uh, to build wells. We go and build water wells in those villages. We've built schools in those villages. And so the relationship between the pastor and the village chief. Now, the village chief, I, in some of the places, the pastors told us that the village chief does come to the Methodist church, but they would never admit it and say, yes, I do, because they'd be breaking the rules because it's not. And, and we're very close to being um, recognized. You, you, you all know how government stuff works. And uh, so we're close. And uh, somebody asked a question one time, you know, couldn't you just like slip a little money and make it happen quicker? And, and yeah, we, we could. But what's the witness of that? You know, what, the, what's, what do we say? And if we illegally do something if we properly go through the channels and make it happen right so yeah so there's there's probably um, maybe three three thousand thirty six hundred ish Methodist 
that are there. But it's growing. It'll, it'll be interesting when we go back at the end of this month to see how the churches have grown too because every time we've gone, we see more and more growth that's there. So, Other Laotian questions? Okay, let me tell you where we are in the Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church now. Uh, when was the last time I gave y'all a conference update? Mm, about three months ago, I guess. I'm thinking. Maybe longer. I don't remember yet. Where were we on the bishop? <laughs> he no had He had not. Okay, so, so here's where we are right now. And this is, uh, I don't think it's as moving as a target as it had been. And, uh, uh, but um, soon after annual conference in May, uh, Bishop Jones announced that he would be retiring on Ju December 31st of this year. So he's retiring. Uh, he and Mary Lou are moving back to Dallas and have a home there. And so we'll get a new bishop. In November of uh, this year, the jurisdictional conference meets, and that's where bishops are elected. And so uh, in November, three new bishops will be elected, but we will probably not get one of those new bishops because there's some um, unwritten, well, maybe written, there's some traditions within the Texas Conference. Uh, one of them is that we are, we are a large and complicated annual conference. Uh, we've got, you know, the city of Houston is the fourth largest city in the nation, and so we've got that along with a large rural area up in East Texas, so it's not kind of a normal area, it's complicated. And so, um, so we traditionally don't get a new bishop. We want someone who's had some bishing experience before, so, uh, so we traditionally don't get a rookie bishop. Uh, we also uh, do not get a, so it, someone who's elected from the Texas conference doesn't come back and serve in the Texas conference. So you got that. And then uh, the other thing is what we call the Norris rule. Were y'all around during when Bishop Norris was our bishop? Bishop Norris came to serve the Texas annual conference for only four years, the last four years before he retired. And he said, you all in Texas don't ever do that again. Don't ever take a bishop who's on the way to retirement because they don't have time to cast a vision. They don't have time to build relationships and really lead. So don't get somebody who's on their way out. So when we begin to look at who will come to the Texas conference, we've got to look at those three unwritten rules. And uh, so taking all that into consideration, um, I, I would bet all of my Bitcoin investment <laughs> Uh, I invested $25 in Bitcoin, and now it's, now it's $9, so uh, I would bet every penny of that, uh, that that Bishop Ruben Sines is our next bishop. Uh, bishop Sines is uh, uh, in the Rio conference right now. He's, he's really a great guy. He'll do a wonderful job in Texas. Uh, but um, Bishop Harvey in uh, Louisiana, who's next door to us, uh, she's from Texas, so that's sort of a strike, although she'd be amazing to have here. That's one strike against her. And then she doesn't have two quadrennium, two eight-year terms left to serve before she retires. So that's two against her, so, so she won't. Uh, and there's really not, 
any other eligible ones within the jurisdiction. So uh, I predict that uh, Bishop Signs is going to be our next bishop. So on January the 1st of 2023, uh, he'll come in and be the new person. And um, I, I, he has, uh, he's been a great voice about the importance of remaining United Methodist. Uh, and he's called the churches in his conference to remain United Methodist. And uh, I think he's going to be a, a good, refreshing, uh, well-respected leader for us in the Texas conference. So, he, he's got three quadrinia left to serve, too. So, uh, you know, we had Bishop Huey for 12 years. Uh, we could possibly have Bishop Sines for 12 years. And you all know Bishop Huey was an excellent leader in the Texas conference. So not just because she worshiped here at St. Paul's, but just because she was a great leader. So I understand that there's a discerning process that allows the churches who want to, to exit the United Methodist Church. Do you have any idea in this annual conference how many churches are choosing to go with Cobalt? Okay, so um, in 2019 at General Conference, a new paragraph was added to the discipline, paragraph 2553, and it was to allow churches who could not, uh, who felt like they could not be a part of the belief system of the United Methodist Church, it allowed them to, to leave graciously. Here, here's the thing, you know, John Wesley, what, what was great about him and the connectionalism thing is, is he put in this thing called the trust clause. Have, did we talk about the trust clause? So y'all know about the trust clause. The trust clause is every Methodist church, every United Methodist church, uh, every legal document they have, they sign the trust clause. And the trust clause says that uh, while we, the people here at St. Paul's, we pay all the bills for St. Paul's and we pay, if we, if we had um, a mortgage, we would pay that and we, we have to buy the chairs and pay the air conditioning and all those things, but we're really owned, our, our land, our building, our facilities, our stuff is really owned by the Texas Annual Conference. And so every, every legal document we have has that trust clause that's in there. Every United Methodist Church in the world has that trust clause in their, in their, um, their deeds and all that. And so uh, Wesley wanted to make it very, very difficult to leave the system. Wanted to make it very hard because he believed in our connection and being together. And so that's why if you do drive up through East Texas and you stop in some small town, on one corner you've got First Baptist Church and on another corner you've got Second Baptist Church and on another corner you've got Faith Baptist Church and then on another corner you've got the First Methodist Church. Because the Baptists get mad and they say, well, we're going to pick up our stuff and go and we're going to pick up our stuff. But we can't do that in our system. The trust clause holds us together. So paragraph 2553 allowed churches who, who, didn't, who couldn't be a part of the United Methodist Church to leave with their property and with their assets, but they had to pay two years worth of apportionments and their unfunded pension liabilities, and then they could graciously leave. So we are in a discerning, not we, St. Paul's, but in the Texas, well, in conferences all over the country, they're in a discerning process to see if they're gonna stay United Methodist or not. Uh, we, we're at St. Paul's, we we're, we don't even talk about it, we're staying. Uh, we're not discerning, we've already discerned, and we're staying a part of the United Methodist Church. There's other churches, there are uh, 653 
ish churches in the Texas Annual Conference, and probably probably 150 or so are in the discerning process. Um, now, discerning doesn't mean you're leaving, though. It just means you're thinking about your options. And um, I, I'm trying to think, Bill, who has... Uh, I'm not aware of any that have actually voted yet, whether to stay or go, um, other than bearing and grace in the past. And so in, in December, we'll have a called session of annuals conference, and we'll vote on those churches who have discerned and decided to... To go. There's a smaller percentage than I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. And that's just who's discerning. That's not necessarily who's going to go. It's, it's pretty hard to go. Uh, you, you've got to pay that money. You've got to. And two-thirds of your professing members have to vote to leave. So, and, um, I, I mean, that's just a, that's a high bar. To, but, again, that's what Wesley was trying to achieve is for us. The connection was supposed to be strong. So, yeah. Did I kind of answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Other things I can fill y'all in on? Yeah. What is the deadline for churches to make a decision? So, what's the deadline for churches to make a decision if they're going to leave? Uh, 2553 expires December 31 of 2023. Um, everyone expects that it will be extended, but only the General Conference can extend it, and the General Conference doesn't meet until 2024. So it'll be after that deadline. So there, there are some who say, you got to get out, got to get out. The, um, the general conference of 2020, you know, was postponed because of COVID, and then it was postponed again, and then it was postponed again, and now it's set for 2024. There's been some discussion about will, will the 2020 delegates be the delegates to 2024, and, and right now we believe that those who were elected in 2020, of which I am one, uh, will be the 2024 delegates. They're, that's what the Council of Bishops is saying right now. Yes. The churches that are now in discernment, are, are they united in their reasons for considering that? Uh, he wanted to, the question was, the churches who are discerning, are, are they united in their reasons for discerning? Um, I, I, want, I, have, I want to tread carefully. Um, I know. And they're live streaming, and I'll, maybe I'll turn off my microphone. Uh, it, it, listen, the, the bottom line is really it's, it's human sexuality is what, what the argument is. is. There, um, there, um, there's a group called traditional incompatibilist that say they cannot be a part of a denomination that allows full inclusion traditional incompatibilists, cannot be 
in a denomination that would allow same-sex marriage or same-sex unions or same-sex or or, or uh, LGBTQI ordination that they they could not be a denomination in a denomination that's a part of that. There's the the other end of that are called the progressive incompatibilist, and they say I cannot be a part of a denomination that would not allow full inclusion. And those two groups compile about 15% of United Methodism. The other 85% fall somewhere in the middle of either, either traditional compatibilist or progressive compatibilist, all, all in the middle. Say, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know about same-sex marriage and all, but I, that's not a deal breaker for me. You know, I can still be a part of that. And so uh, that's where the vast majority of us are. Uh, and, and so uh, yesterday we had a meeting here and John Stevens, the, the pastor at Chapelwood, uh, he said, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a traditional compatibilist. So there are traditional folks who want to remain United Methodist. There's progressive folks who want to remain United Methodist. It's the, it really is the largest chunk of it, you know, when we talk about being a, a big tent church where you've got everybody from uh, Hillary Clinton to uh, who's the who's the Methodist guy that he's he's not in Congress anymore. Well, Lindsey Graham is a Methodist. Uh, Hillary Clinton's a Methodist. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, we're a pretty big, pretty big group. So I know <laughs> you're shocked. <laughs> but I, but I mean, I think that's that's the the beauty of who we are is that, uh, you know, uh, we, there's things that we might disagree on. There's things Bill and I disagree on, uh, but <laughs> his race, yeah. And so, uh, uh, but in the end, we still love each other and we're going to be a part of things. And, and I think that's who the church has been for a long time is, uh, you know, we disagree on things. I, I bet all of you all don't agree on the same things and have different political views, different ideas about things and all. But we come together and we say, you know, this, we do agree on uh, that, that we're people who love God and love our neighbors. And, and this other stuff we can put aside and do the work that, that God's calling us to. So, What else can I tell you all? So, um, on when did we do the first even song? We went to worship on Sunday morning. Monday. Yeah. So, so on Sunday when we got there, we went to worship, and we uh, there was another visiting choir that was finishing up, and so we we went to worship on Sunday morning, and we went to even song, and we learned that you do not do intinction. Uh, you just, you simply don't do the wine. If you don't want the wine, you do not intinct and because you'll get in trouble for that. And then, um, and then on, on Monday, uh, I, when we got there, uh, they, they had asked if I would preach the Evensong service on the 31st. And so I was prepared for that. But then on Monday, when the choir went, uh, the, the, one of the priests said, uh, okay, Jeff, this is what you're doing this evening at the service. One of the, it was just, it was a reading. I think I did the reading from the Old Testament. 
And, and so I said, okay, that's fine. And then when we finished that service, I said, okay, now I'll be here Sunday too, and you can kind of walk me through where I'm supposed to sit and everything on Sunday when I preach. And he said, yeah, and then tomorrow you need to be at 4.30, and I'll walk you through what you're going to do at tomorrow's service. And, um, so Tuesday, when we got there, tu- uh, Tuesday... Wednesday was the Feast of St. Samson. And so Tuesday evening, because it was the eve of a feast day, there's a solemn evensong service. And so uh, we got in and got ready, and I was going to read from uh, the New Testament that day. And then one of the priests said, oh, it's, it's uh, tomorrow's feast day, so we wear our copes. And the cope is like a cape, but it's huge and heavy and very ornate, and so they stuck one on me. That's the picture Bill was talking about that I'm glad nobody got a picture of because somebody would say, oh, we need those at St. Paul's. No, they're <laughs> heavy and hot. And, uh, uh, but so after, after the service, uh, I said, okay, so, so tell me about St. Samson. You know, why, why do y'all celebrate this feast day for St. Samson? Three of their priests were there, and we had just been through this service, and they all said, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> That, that this, this area was settled by the Celts, and the Celtic people brought some of their saints with them, and I, I don't really know. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so, it was a, so I ended up being in every Evensong service. Uh, it was, it was uh, really an honor to be a part of that and to be in the services. Uh, uh, yeah, so... Uh, uh, I'll be, if y'all would like to tell Bill, but uh, when I get back, uh, like I say, the 28th, uh, we'll be leaving for my last and really Bishop Jones' last trip to Laos, but I'd be glad to come back and tell y'all how that goes if you'd like. And so, yeah. So, am I supposed to pray or something? (laughs) We did that at the beginning. Okay. So you can do it. Jeff preached, uh, let me hit this mic over here, because I don't oh. think they can hear. Well. They can, but. Um, so Jeff preached the Sunday that we, he preached, we had that service, and we went directly from that to get on the bus to drive about six hours yeah. to uh, London. London. And we got to London, we were kind of tired. But what was sort of funny to me about that is that he made this joke about how on Sundays here in the fall he's to make sure that the 11 o'clock service ends in time enough for people to go to the real worship service, which is a professional football game, (laughs) which is on TV. And that Sunday, London was in the soccer, women's soccer? The women's women's football team was playing in the finals. And they won. And they won. Uh, Evensong was at 4 o'clock, and the, that la- the finals game started at 5 o'clock. And so I, was co- I told them I was cognizant of that, you know, they don't, I know I'm standing between you and your football game. So, so it, what was amazing to me is that, uh, you know, I usually think of the British as these staid, solemn people. And Jeff got at least three solid laughs in yeah, that sermon. Yeah. That, was, that was great. <laughs> that was great. All right, thank you for being here. Thank you. And thank you all, and uh, we'll see you here next Sunday. Remember this, no matter where you go, no matter what happens this week, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step. I'll see you here next week. Thank you. Thank you. you.